Well, hello and welcome to the Story Hive podcast, and this is episode 27. When we say these are true stories from our collection, they are exactly that. And sometimes these stories stay with you for a lifetime. And I know that as you're listening to me, you've got your own stories too. So why not record them and send them to us here at the Story Hive? Three W's, thestoryhive.co.uk. But the first story, well, I think you're just going to have to listen to it because it's going to blow your mind. And it's called The Flight. Now, I've been looking forwards to setting this story down. And I think you'll understand once you finish it. It was told to me by someone I just knew and I just knew was not making it up. And that's probably why it stayed with me for so many years. I was just 18 years old when I heard it, barely out of secondary school. Now, one of my rather odd affectations, if you want to call it that, back then and still to this day, if it could be called that, was that I liked and still like afternoon tea. I don't know why. Such an old-fashioned thing, I guess, but I just did and do. So as a result, since the age of 15, I'd been going to a very old-fashioned department store in the town I lived in, and they had this fancy restaurant, uniformed elderly waitresses and a manager in a suit and a tie. It was always mostly full of well-heeled lady shoppers and retirees. Well, that's what it looked like. But I just liked going there. It seemed curiously quaint for one so young. And of course, my friends often joined me, mostly on a Saturday afternoon and sometimes on a Wednesday. Tea and toasted tea cakes. Odd, I know, but cute in a way. A bunch of kids taking tea. Anyway, back to my story and my 18-year-old self. Over a few weeks, I started to notice an old man sitting by himself in a corner of the place, smartly dressed, reading a paper usually, crossword I think, and he looked like a regular visitor. One rainy afternoon in the middle of the week, I was meeting four girls I knew around four o'clock and I sat down as usual, but this time the restaurant was completely empty. And then for the first time it really struck me. There he was, the old man, like always, sitting quietly in a far corner. And then, on impulse, I don't know why, I decided to go over and ask him if he'd like to join me. I thought perhaps he'd like some company. And I made a joke about it just being the two of us. And to my delight, he said he'd be happy to. And that was the start of me knowing Geoffrey. I need to describe him to you. He was around mid to late 60s, I guess. He had sandy-coloured light brown hair and a very neat short haircut. Very manicured moustache, neatly clipped. He had an immaculate dark blazer with a gold badge, crisp white shirt, stripy tie, and trousers with really sharp creases. All finished off with brown brogues, polished to a shine. And he had a kind of briskness to him, slightly formal. That was his general look. Very British old school. Remember, this was still the 70s, and he was very well-spoken, posh almost, I suppose you could say. Now, on this day, the girls arrived, and Geoffrey was utterly charming, and they just loved him. And so it began. Every time I went for tea with my friends, Geoffrey always joined us. It's odd now, I suppose, looking back, him hanging out with us youngsters, but it wasn't bad in any way. And plus, everyone liked him. He was funny and sharp. But then I found out something that made me feel quite sad. You see, 
I knew a lovely couple. They had a very large house about 50 minutes from my parents' place, Sarah and Ben. And they used to go to the local folk club that I played at. And I got to know them really well. And I even got invited to some of their parties. Now, I knew they'd inherited the house from Sarah's mother when she died. And they'd converted the upper three floors into single rooms to rent. And they lived on the large ground floor with the garden. And the thing that made me sad was then I learnt that Geoffrey lived in one of their rooms and in fact had lived there for the past year. Now I knew the rooms that were pretty small, they were popular with students and they were cheap, all being pretty basic. They compromised like a little bed sitting room with a tiny bathroom. And it just seemed strange to me that a man like this lived in such a place like that. It just seemed out of whack. He looked so very well turned out and well-spoken, not poor, and so very nice too. Now, I don't know why I felt it. It just seemed unfair to me for a man like that to live in such a place. But whatever. The months rolled by, and most weeks I saw him at the tea room. And he became part of my world, I suppose you could say. You see, I've often felt my life is a play sometimes, and all the people I know are in it as characters, and I'm just a character in their plays too. And so now Geoffrey became a character in my play, and a lovely one too. Now, one of my hobbies at the time, I was a unit member of a local search and rescue team, and I loved it. it kept me fit, and I loved the camaraderie and the sense of fellowship. That kind of sense of comfort and well-being you get, being with, well, like-minded people. Anyway, one day at one of our meetings, an announcement was made. We were a registered charity, and now we were looking for new committee members to help out with our fundraising activities. The best way to describe us, we were a bit like a St John's Ambulance Group, in a way. We were highly trained in a range of emergency rescue skills, including first aid, advanced medical skills, general rescue techniques, radio communication, and a host of other things. And generally, we attended large local and county events, and we looked after everybody. We had vehicles and equipment. It was, it was really great fun. But that night, as I went home, I thought about Geoffrey. Maybe he wanted to be on the committee. And so the next time I saw him, I asked him, would he like to join our charity? And he said he'd be very happy to. And Julie, he came to the next meeting and got signed up. So now I got to see him outside the tea room. He was a real bundle of energy and everyone liked him and he really helped. And now because of this, I did occasionally call round to drop paperwork and things off to his house. Well, to his room. And he didn't seem phased or thrown by me visiting. In fact, I got the strong impression he was rather glad of the company. But it really was a spartan place, I thought. Small, barely room for two small chairs. Not cosy at all. And I'd asked Sarah and Ben about him. And they said he was very quiet and he never had visitors. And whoever he was, I, I just liked him. He was genuinely kind and funny with a really good dry sense of humour. And he didn't give me the impression of being sad or lonely. But remember, I was just 18 and still very wet behind the ears. Life hadn't taught me that much at that point. Now I learnt from the pictures in his room, and there weren't many, that he'd been in the RAF as a pilot. And I only much later found out he'd been a squadron leader. Now, I know it probably sounds weird to you, 
Because what could some teenager and a guy in his late 60s have in common? Now, I wasn't a small kid, by the way. I was six feet tall and 14 stone, and I could look after myself. And so I honestly can't answer what our connection was. But I knew it was there, though. I knew I liked him, and that was enough. But it was around a year later what I actually heard, what I'm about to tell you. You see, I only really saw Geoffrey briefly, a few times a week on average at best, once or twice at the tea room and at the monthly charity committee meeting. But we never met outside of that. Apart from this, I was busy with my friends, I was building my burgeoning music career, learning my craft, playing gigs most nights, most of them in London, pubs and bars and restaurants and the occasional folk club. And although we chatted a lot, I didn't really have a clear sense of who he was or, more importantly, much information about his past. And he didn't offer anything and I didn't ask. It seemed unimportant, really. He was a nice man. That's all I needed to know. It was Geoffrey, and I liked him. And then one day, I bumped into him as I was walking into town. I was going to buy some shoes. And as we talked, I could see he, he seemed troubled. Now, our route took us through a local park, and then he asked to sit down. And he really seemed out of sorts, and I asked him what was wrong. And that's when he told me that I'm now going to tell you. In 1966, the Cold War between the West and the Communist Russia was in full swing, and Jeffrey had been a fighter pilot, part of an RAF interceptor squadron, flying at the time the world-beating English electric lightning jet. Now, this was an aircraft capable of flying above Mark II, which back then was pretty amazing. The pilots at the time describing it as being like saddled to a skyrocket. This thing was super fast and incredibly manoeuvrable and was technically the best aircraft of its type in the world. Geoffrey said he'd been married and had a baby son and they lived in military accommodation close to the airfield. And like all operational pilots, he'd been required to have regular physicals. And these apparently had been carried out by his best friend who happened to be the squadron's medical officer. Now one day, he got a call from him asking him to pop into the camp infirmary. Apparently he'd had a persistent cough for the last couple of weeks and he'd complained of feeling a bit tired. So they'd done some tests and some x-rays had been taken. But the news was terrible. It all pointed to the fact that he had early stage lung cancer. Traces of other cancers evident. The signs all abundantly clear. Now, importantly, you have to remember this was his very best friend as this information becomes pretty pertinent later on. This was the 1960s, and Geoffrey was very old school, even when he spoke to me. A man of his generation, emotions almost not to be mentioned. And he told me he took the news calmly, and was more concerned about the effect on his wife. And he asked his friend the MO for a prognosis, and was told maybe a year, maybe less. They needed more tests, and once that confirmed everything, they could begin treatment straight away. And now Geoffrey asked what his survival chances were and was told by his friend, very slim. He said he'd seen this sort of thing before and it usually spread pretty quickly. And you've got to remember, the radiation treatments back then and drug therapies weren't hugely successful. But the second test would give them more information, exactly what they could do, he said. And so they talked some more 
with Jeffrey saying to me that after hearing the pain and misery he was going to be put through by the treatments, he actually told his friend he'd have to think about it, adding he'd rather go out fighting on his own terms, not in some hospital bed, wasting away. Now his other fear, ridiculously, was that he wouldn't be able to fly. And he told me he took his protection of the country very seriously. The Russians was getting bold around then, he said. And the idea he couldn't fly, almost worse than the cancer. Men like him, really of another generation entirely. Their values, I suppose, curious and almost unfathomable to us now. So he begged his friend not to mention his medical condition to anyone immediately. And he added that seeing the x-rays with the dark areas had actually made him chill to his very bones. But still... So his friend agreed to say nothing for the time being, but only temporarily. Because as he pointed out, a diagnosis of cancer made him technically unfit to fly, which was completely against RAF regulations. And withholding such information was a court-martial offence for both of them. Both men, again, of that period, incredibly disciplined and professional, military men used to following orders without question. Anyway... Jeffrey said his friend said okay he'd agreed to hold the report briefly. They'd do some more tests and then they'd have to tell the authorities and proceed as regulations dictated. A week or so passed he said and Jeffrey then explained his duties. He and his colleagues were effectively on standby often sitting in their aircraft on the runway because almost regularly at that time they'd be routinely scrambled to escort Russian aircraft out of UK airspace. Large bombers usually, them constantly nearly encroaching deliberately, high above the place, testing the air defences, Geoffrey said, probing. And it was his job to protect his country, and he was very proud to do it. But of course now, every day continued for him, him carrying the knowledge of his life-threatening illness, which... He didn't mention to his wife. Again, he added he hadn't wanted to upset her unnecessarily. But there was something that, as he said that to me, it just made me wonder at such a thought process. I kind of thought it was both brave and unfair to her all at the same time. However, he continued. He just said, a few days later and late one night, he was on duty when suddenly a call came to scramble. And getting into his aircraft, he was assigned to search a sector that had been alerted by radar to a potential Russian aircraft incursion. And this was serious, so they scrambled. Now I have to tell you, sitting there with this old-looking man on a bench in a park, I tried to picture the young RAF pilot he had been. It just seemed incredible. Thinking of him, thundering to the night sky in a jet fighter, ready to fight, keen and brave. So Jeffrey said he followed the coordinates he'd been given, and then a new order came through telling him to climb higher, the suspect aircraft now identified as a long-range bomber. But he told me he felt very calm, completely confident in his training and ability, secure in the knowledge he had the best aircraft in the world, the fastest and the most lethal too. And he talked about the darkness, the vast empty sky, visibility being poor to nothing, him relying on the not very sophisticated instruments he had available to him at that time. But still on he went, doing his job, intercept, protect, follow orders. 
and he smiled a little now, and I could see from his expression he loved it. Him remembering it right there to me, this young kid. And I could see it in the way his body position changed. He became almost alert, his eyes brighter, the ears almost falling away from him. The power, his state of our aircraft. And he said he almost felt invincible, knowing his squadron were on patrol too, his men, his brothers in arms. And that was when it happened, he said. It came from all around him, suddenly, a white light, incredibly bright, almost blinding him, lighting up his entire aircraft, filling the cockpit. And he remembered reading he was at 50,000 feet and still climbing, and everything felt fine. The aircraft totally responsive, all systems good. He was in complete control. But this light was suddenly everywhere. It was possibly a new weapon, he'd supposed, but then it just snapped off. And now he could see them. Three shapes ahead of him, a large one and two smaller ones, travelling quickly, the two smaller ones moving around, both easy to spot as they were light-covered, pulsing, he said. So now he gave chase, adding he was nearly at maximum speed, and he was getting close to his maximum height of 60,000 feet. Now you've got to remember, commercial aircraft today fly at between 30,000 and 42,000 feet, so he was really pushing his aircraft. And then, it all happened so fast, he said, instinct simply took over, his training. Because to his surprise, the larger shape just shot off forwards, while to his left and then to his right, the two smaller objects seemed to fly backwards towards him, and they took up station on either side, both now next to him. Their speed so fast, they were almost a blur. And then he leant forward and gripped my arm. Because suddenly, it stopped. The larger the objects, in an instant, up ahead of half a mile away. It was absolutely still, hovering. Him still now chasing it at nearly his top speed. Remember, this was the fastest aircraft in the world. And beside him, there were the two smaller objects. He couldn't really make out what they were. They were shapes, but they were moving really quickly, keeping pace with him. And now he was concentrating on the object up ahead. And on his panel... His radar registered absolutely nothing. According to his instruments, it wasn't there. But he could see it, and it was. And now as he approached it, he could see it. It was simply enormous, as big as a skyscraper building, he said. His face shocked. There were millions of lights flashing and pulsing across it, every colour you could imagine. And he said he couldn't quite take it all in, and he thought it could be a new Russian or even American superweapon. And all the air crews always heard reports they were both developing new aircraft and weapons. Remember, this was the era of the arms race, he said. Great Britain at the forefront, Jeffrey's own aircraft, a testament to that. But this was impossible. The thing was vast, bigger than anything he'd ever seen. And more importantly right then, it was completely stopped. Him now coming closer by thousands of yards as he continued to fly towards it at full speed. And he suddenly realised he was going to hit it. And then he said he yanked his control column into a hard left turn. The aircraft responding perfectly, he said. The G-force holding him tight. But then, the whole thing lit up. The light getting brighter again, making his entire body tingle briefly, he said almost passing through him. It was like the daytime it was so bright. 
and his darkened helmet visor glass now down to stop him being blinded. And then, to his horror, all his instruments stopped working, dead, the panel going dark. But he still had control and power, he said. The aircraft was still his, he could feel it. And now he immediately went into a descent, hoping his ejector seat would work, knowing it was his only chance of surviving. As above him, he saw the huge object simply shoot upwards, the two smaller objects following it, gone in under a second, the light blinking out in an instant. And he said the speed of the objects was impossible to calculate. But then his instruments all came back to life and the sky was empty, dark again. And he felt such a relief and he smiled at me as he said it. And now he powered back and said he continued his patrol, but there was nothing until he was recalled to the airfield with all the other aircraft, the scramble now over. Nothing sighted, false alarm, they all said. But one thing he said about what he'd seen, they weren't Russian or American machines, because they'd effectively defied the laws of physics, he said. No aircraft could move like that, not at that time. It was physically impossible. Remember, he was an experienced pilot, highly trained, very intelligent. And he added the huge one, well, nothing of that size could manoeuvre like that. It was... Impossible. And then he told me something I later confirmed when I researched it many years later. You see, it turned out that unusual sighting reports, as they were called, were not actually encouraged by the RAF. Indeed, well known amongst pilots, it was best not to mention these sightings to anyone. Their thoughts being they'd be called crazy or get grounded or worse. So it became an unspoken thing amongst all pilots. If you saw something strange, keep it to yourself. And in fact, many accounts of such unusual sighting encounters were later discovered in officially released records being reported during the Second World War even, usually from bomber pilots and crews, the guys that flew the highest. They reported bright lights, fast moving, high above them, sometimes around them. And now I could see in Jeffrey's face that encounter. It shocked him. The entire experience, unsurprisingly, baffling. His expression now as he sat in front of me, almost half confused. But then he recovered himself and continued. And I can tell you, I was spellbound. I, I, I wasn't expecting this. Jeffrey said he returned to the airfield, but he said nothing. And none of the other pilots on his patrol reported anything either. And he even said... Perhaps he'd imagined it, stress or something, the worry about the cancer. But then he repeated it, saying he felt adamant. It had all been real. And then he sighed very heavily and told me whatever had happened, it was over and done with. It wasn't important. Because pressingly, he knew he couldn't hide his illness any longer. So he went to his friend, the medical officer. And over the next days, they began the second testing process. And I could see the sadness in him as he told me. He said it probably meant he'd never fly again. And then with a kind of half shrug and a small self-deprecating smile, he added, plus I'd kick the bucket, which I found terribly inconvenient. And we both laughed at that, his eyes filling with the twinkle they sometimes had. And now long weeks passed, him waiting for the results. But he felt fine, he said. His cough seemed to have gone. He slept well. He was eating okay. But this was something he'd been told was very common in cancer patients. Them experienced an upswing before the body began to almost shut down. 
and now he was on light duties at the MO's request, which precluded him from flying, which he hated, he said. But he understood. It's just regulations. He was in the officer's mess, he said, when the call came. His friend, the MO, who told him to come immediately as all the tests were back, and he said he jumped in his car with trepidation and went to the small base camp infirmary, stealing himself for what was to come. And then he got told the news. It was gone, completely vanished, the cancer, from his lungs from everywhere, not a single trace. Not only that, some old pneumonia scar tissue he'd been left with as a child completely disappeared too. His lungs were completely clear. In fact, he was completely fit, in perfect health, in fact. And the MO couldn't explain it. It was beyond reason. All the signs had pointed to a terminal diagnosis. Geoffrey didn't mention his encounter with the objects and the lights, he said. That would just make him sound crazy, even to his friend. But he was completely cured. The MO said he was healthy, and he said he'd prayed for him, God working in mysterious ways. But Geoffrey told me he thought very differently. The only explanation he could think of, there had to have been something in the light. His eyes now seemed far away as he spoke. He said he remembered the tingling sensation as it passed through him. There was something in the light. And so he went back to his full flying duty again, he said. Life carry on as normal, full of health. Him never being sick again. No colds, no flus, no aches, nor pains. In his entire life. And his friend, the MO, had accidentally lost all the bad test results and the medical information. And both men had agreed never to talk about it ever again. But then came the sting in the tail. He changed soon afterwards, he said. His moods, his temperament. He almost turned in on himself, becoming withdrawn and quiet. And as I write this now, it sounded a lot like PTSD. But whatever it was, he told me his marriage sadly collapsed and his wife moved to Australia and he never saw his son again. So he continued his active flying duties at the squadron, but eventually got transferred to a training post, and then later, he retired. He never met another woman, he said. He told me it didn't feel right in some way. He'd let them both down, his wife and son. And he loved them terribly, still missing them every day. And I could see the pain in his face as he said it. And he left the RAF and went travelling, never really settling anywhere. Different jobs, different places, he said. His small pension enough for him to get by. And then I remember him looking me straight in the eye and saying he just felt lost, broken almost. And that's the saddest thing I've probably ever heard from a grown-up. I, I was just a kid. I didn't know what to say. And looking back, I still have absolutely no idea why he told me that story. Maybe just to tell someone? I guess I was harmless, non-judgmental, I suppose, an innocent ear. I really have no clue. And I can tell you, a guy like that, I mean, why would he make something like that up? So we went into town, and I bought my shoes, and we went for tea. But we never spoke about that conversation again. And life carried on as normal, meeting for tea, him and my friends, 
him going to the committee meetings, Jeffrey just being himself. Until about two months later, and I noticed he wasn't in the tea room that week and nor the week after. And I never saw him again. I went round to the house, but Sarah and Ben told me they'd found a short note and his key saying he was giving up his room. He was fully paid up to date and he'd left the place immaculate, thanking him for their kindness. And if I'm honest, it really upset me. He didn't even say goodbye. But I kind of understood, I think, in a way, him being lost, as he said, broken. And as for that story, well, I don't know what to think. He didn't strike me as the kind of person who'd make something like that up. It just seemed too fantastical. Plus, looking back, that sort of stuff wasn't commonly found in newspapers or films or even books at the time. And why would he make it up? I was some know-nothing kid. I mean, what reason would he have? And plus the pain I saw. It looked pretty genuine to me. And so right now I'm kind of glad I can remember him here in this story. He was a really nice guy. Genuinely kind, open and welcoming. And I could feel it. And you'd have really liked him if you met him. He must have passed by now. Then less, of course, he's still out there. I never forgot about the light and what it gave and what it took and what it did for him. For him, maybe. So I guess I truly hope he is out there, still, somehow. And if he is, I hope one day he gets found and loved. He deserves that, if nothing else. I think we all do. Well, like me, you're probably thinking, wow, because that actually happened. Well, this next story, hmm, I think you've met this guy. And if you have, I can only apologise. Because this is a story, really, although it's interesting, is drenched in darkness. But it's still a killer story. And it's called The Cuckoo. Now, this story stayed with me because of, well, because of how bad it made me feel at the time. But it was one of those life lessons we get. And so I think that's why it's an important one for me to set down. Now, this is way back in the 80s. I was a young musician working at a local restaurant and I was playing a regular late night gig. And it really suited me because the money was good and the venue was in a large and airy basement. Now, because of the restaurant's location, it was in a kind of small village upmarket part of London, it meant very quickly my gig became the hangout for all the local late-night folk. The kind of people who just want to sit and drink and have a good time into the wee small hours, undisturbed by the inconvenience of licensing laws. Now, I always found that made for a really good atmosphere. Alcohol and music are pretty good bedfellows. Well, anyway... Shortly after I got the job, the very kind and decent owner, my boss, a lovely guy, he introduced me to this bloke called John, a man he said was a very good friend to him and the restaurant. And this John guy, well, he was very pleasant and complimented me on my music. And then over the next few weeks, I saw him pretty much every time I played. He seemed to almost hold court at a far corner table, sort of receiving people and generally acting in a kind of unofficial host position. Now, various people had told me he was very rich, and he certainly looked it. He was mid-40s, tanned, 
expensively dressed. He had a big gold fancy watch and he drove a new, brand new top range Bentley convertible. Now it turned out the owner always listened to his ideas for the restaurant and his other businesses. And so it was that pretty much every Friday and Saturday night, John sat at that table holding forth to the boss. And sometimes I'd stop and have a chat. And John was always genuinely interested in me, just having a little chat to me, this kid playing music in a corner. One night, he came up to me as I finished and he said he was pretty well connected in the music and publishing industry and would I like some help placing my work? Well, you can imagine, I was, I was delighted. This was exactly what I needed. And so he invited me to lunch and he gave me his office address. But to my surprise, when I got there, I found it was in some kind of shirt factory, you know, on a local industrial estate. And I think he must have noticed my bemusement, and he quickly pointed out he was running the company just on a temporary basis as a favour for my boss, the restaurant owner. He'd been brought in as a kind of business consultant, he said. And apparently the company hadn't been doing that well, and he'd asked John if he could help him turn it round. Well, it looked pretty busy to me, a hive of activity. People kept knocking on his door, him giving orders left, right and centre. And I could see outside there were rows and rows of these big industrial sewing machines all buzzing away with people. So I gave him copies of all my music and some of my children's books. And he said he'd call his contacts and see what he could do. Now, it's difficult for me to really get this across to you, but for me, this was great news. He was obviously pretty rich. He was very good at business and well-connected. And Carlo, the lovely young restaurant manager, he was a really lovely bloke, he told me that he'd been offered the use of John's Paris apartment if he wanted it for a holiday. I mean, this guy was amazing and so kind and helpful. And right then, I hoped maybe he could sell my stuff or at least me get to the right people. Because it was tough, it still is, trying to get anywhere. But back then, as a young musician, a writer, I was really struggling. And of course, I didn't have any contacts. But now, I did. I had John. And I felt really excited. And I told my girlfriend, maybe this was the chance I've been waiting for. I mean, he was a top businessman and very influential. And everybody could tell that. But then, the next Friday, when I arrived at the restaurant, the staff all greeted me excitedly. God, they said, you've missed something outrageous. Apparently, some woman had arrived just after the place had opened. And seeing John, she'd launched into a violent attack upon him. Eventually, she'd had to be removed by two of the waiters. She was screaming and accusing him of stealing money from her. And the owner had been so offended by that, he'd actually forcibly thrown her out. And John went on to explain to everybody, with much embarrassment, it was an ex-girlfriend. And they intimated, sadly, she'd had a nervous breakdown. She had mental health issues. And, of course, we all muttered our sympathies. I mean, God, what a thing. Anyway, the matter was quickly forgotten and the weeks passed. And then one evening, John called me over and explained that his two main music and publishing contacts were all away on holiday, but he promised me he'd get my stuff to them. And frustrating though he knew it was, I just had to be a bit patient and wait. And that really cheered me up again and it filled me with hope. Now you also need to know the restaurant was in a pretty nice upmarket area, in a kind of little enclave opposite a very fancy pub. And every Friday and Saturday when it closed at the pub, of course, they all came into the restaurant. They went down into the basement where I was and they packed the place out. They'd eat and drink until the small hours so the boss was making a fortune. And of course, there was yours truly playing and entertaining them. 
And it was really brilliant for me. They were just a lovely group of people, professionals mostly. I really loved playing there. Now, unsurprisingly, John, well, he'd become very friendly with quite a few of what I called the late crowd. A lot of them professionals, barristers and top accountants and the like. And then I heard one of them, a very wealthy barrister, well, she'd even lent John a spare flat she had, as apparently his beautiful house in Hampstead was being completely renovated by a top interior design team. Now, again, it's hard for me to describe, but despite the owner being the boss, it always seemed to me that John was very much the centre of attention, but in a very curiously muted way. You see, the basement was divided into two halves. The larger part with me and around 30 tables, and the other half, a lot smaller, with these little booths in. And that's where John would be, quietly sitting in a corner, his regular table, with the boss. And during the evening, various people would drift over, and they'd just have a little chat and join him and whoever else was there. And the chef, who was an Italian, told me that John had made a fortune on the stock market the previous year, and had asked him to look for suitable properties for him to buy in Italy. So you need to understand, although there were many other characters in the place... It was always John with that kind of quiet and calm presence that seemed to be connected on a different level with so many of the people. Now, one thing I heard, which was a bit sad, really, was he was actually from a very wealthy family, but he was estranged from them. All something to do with some big, large inheritance, a court case and everything. Anyway, one Friday, Carlo, the restaurant manager, who's been my friend by now, he suddenly said to me he was leaving the restaurant and he was going to manage the boss's shirt factory because John had told the owner that was the right move and so Carlo left. But of course I still kept in contact with him. We'd become mates really. And he was really happy because John, this was John again, arranging a pay rise at the new booming new company. And he'd actually appointed him to work alongside John's personal team. He'd even told me Fazal, this was John's personal accountant, was such a whiz with figures and between them, they had the factory running at peak efficiency. But his only little gripe was Fazal would only release all the figures to him after John had approved them. And he always said, as the manager, he thought that was part of his remit. But he wasn't complaining, because now he was earning more money for less hours than he'd ever done. And best of all, he could get a mortgage on a house for his wife and kids. And I was really, really pleased for him. But then the news came. I lugged my guitar down the stairs at the restaurant that Friday and I was greeted by a kind of white-faced staff and they said it was terrible. The news had come in. John was dying. It transpired he'd been diagnosed with a virtually incurable lung disease and the likelihood of a life-saving transplant, well, it just seemed it wasn't going to happen. And I felt terrible. And of course, when I saw him, I sort of said how sorry I was to hear the sad news. And he just sat there, kind of resigned and calm. And he just shrugged and said, it's just one of those things. And so it was that over the next few weeks, there he was, sitting at his table in the corner like before. But he seemed frailer now, his face paler, his voice often barely a whisper. Now, I've already told you, the owner, my boss, a really lovely man. He just looked upset a lot. And I regularly saw him talking with John in the early hours of the morning. And you could see his face barely containing the sorrow. Because he was a genuine and kind man, the boss. He was always wonderful and generous to me. Well, obviously, I didn't bother John with my stuff anymore. I mean, he had way more important things on his mind. And then, 
It turned out he talked to a few people about the work being done on his house and it sounded like a great place. Carlo had actually been up there to see him and he told me how big it was. And even though there were builders everywhere, you could see how amazing the final result would be. But I mean, that was just so sad he wouldn't get to see it. But then the news got worse. It turned out the building firm had gone bankrupt and poor John had paid them up front in order to speed the renovation process up. And I was talking to the waiters and we all said, the last thing a man in John's condition needed was to hear that. But luckily I was told he could still live in that borrowed apartment as long as he needed. So at least, in a way, it was a small comfort. And as I talk now, I can still see him sitting in the corner. And the owner had bought these big cushions in for him and there he sat, propped up, watching us and the dancing happy crowd, a little smile on his face, and he always sipped his ever-present glass of red wine. Just a little. But then a rumour started. It turned out there was an operation that could save his life. But what with him being unable to work, his property being tied up in legal proceedings, then came a question how he's going to pay for it. The Paris apartment was a family asset, so John was in a very, very difficult place. And what could be done? And that weekend came, just like every other, and I played my regular Friday and Saturday slot, John in his usual corner place, talking with the owner, just like always. And I went home. Spending the next day, my Sunday off with my girlfriend. But then, Carlo phoned me on Monday afternoon, and that's when he gave me his news. I couldn't believe it. They'd gone to the shirt factory that Monday morning, but they found the whole place locked up. And when they did manage to get in, they found the building completely empty. No industrial sewing machines, no office equipment. Everything gone. And then it got worse. Because it turned out John hadn't paid anyone in the factory that month. Because he told everybody he'd be paying them a bonus next month. Something he'd explained all to do with accounting purposes. And then Carlo said he'd meet me at the restaurant where he'd tell me the rest of the story. It turned out, unbeknownst to anyone, John had convinced the owner to set up a separate new company to relaunch the clothing firm with John as the managing director. And he'd siphoned all the order money from customers into a separate bank account. And of course, the few staff wages that had been paid over the months well, they turned out to have come from a business overdraft he'd set up using the equipment as collateral. But then it got worse. He'd sold the leveraged equipment to another company for cash, who then removed it on the Sunday afternoon, the same Sunday as I'd been sitting in the garden with my girlfriend. And he'd cleared the business account on the Saturday morning. Then we found his amazing personal accountant, Fazal, just turned out to be nobody, just some poor guy he hired a few months earlier, and he tricked him into completely falsifying the books. And it turned out that Fazal, he's the one that had arranged all the overdrafts and the loans, and he'd signed for them on John's behalf. And of course, he'd been told to keep the fact very secret, because John, who'd flattered him, told him his future was going to be very bright and prosperous. But then it got worse. It turned out the owner had been paying him thousands in cash per week to run the company and advise him on all of his other businesses. 
And he continued to do that throughout all the weeks of John's illness. And even worse, again, was like many other people who'd sat at John's table, he'd also given him thousands of pounds towards this life-saving operation. Well, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I mean, we were dumbstruck. I mean, we even found out he never paid a restaurant bill, but he'd set an up account to be paid at an undisclosed date. And now, John, if that was his name, had simply vanished. Well, over the following weeks, countless individual stories gradually filtered out. He'd slept with various women in the restaurant, the ones who'd felt sorry for him. He'd been loaned large sums of money and even bought others expensive gifts. And he'd fleeced dozens of people and he'd toyed with others. And in a way, I guess I was very lucky. I mean, I didn't have anything he wanted. I was broke. I was too small, just some stupid kid with a guitar and some songs and stories. But he'd spun this incredible, elaborate and, dare I say it, clever and plausible web of lies. But because of people's trust and kindness, he'd ensnared so many. I mean, I completely believed everything he told me. The front, the Bentley, the tan, the watch. It was just all so believable. And in a way, I guess like everyone else, I wanted to believe it. But that was his trick. I mean, why wouldn't you believe a man who looked the part, acted the part, and finally had added a masterstroke of a terminal illness? I mean, wow, he was dying. I mean, who could criticise the poor guy? But what a world to live in. A complete fantasy landscape designed to manipulate so many kind folk. All of them kept temporarily afloat and off guard by him carefully playing dozens of people off against each other. He placed information here and there, the kind of Chinese whispers effect in full flow, and everyone, without knowing it, had added to the illusion. I guess you could say it was like some plate spinner in a circus, but he'd used people's belief and kindness to keep the lies spinning. He was obviously completely immune to the distress and pain and suffering he caused. In a way, it was like a virus that just moves on to the next healthy cell, and he drains it of life and then moves on again. It was a parasite, effectively. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I can't understand a mind like that. I mean... No permanence anywhere, no real friends, no sense of shame, no reality, no real human connections, presumably always looking over his shoulder. Remember the woman that attacked him? It turned out later there was a reason she'd attacked him. But what a lonely life to be so cold and just to undermine the one stable platform so many of us live on, and that's trust. I mean, really, that's about as unpleasant a person as you can be. I mean, money can be replaced, but trust? I mean, that's an expensive commodity. And like I say, I really learnt a lesson from it. And for my own peace of mind, I'll keep paying that price. Because the alternative doesn't bear thinking about. And so, I was young. I emerged from that episode a little bit more battered and having my faith in people bashed about a bit. But... I recovered. Because remember, I did say, in a way, it was a good life lesson. And it made me more cautious in the future, which in fact stood me in good stead a few times. 
But I tell you this, briefly, I saw a dark, dark place. And it wasn't very nice. Well, I hope you enjoyed that story, even though I know it kind of makes you angry sometimes to hear it. And it makes me angry because I lived it. But it was a good story and it did kind of change me. It made me more cautious and more sceptical. And up to a point, maybe it's a little wake up call for you if you're a very, very trusting person. So do sometimes watch out. Well, that's it from me here, Phil, at thestoryhive.co.uk. For our last podcast for the next, oh, I don't know, week. So do tune in next week to hear the next of the True Stories podcast. And as always, I'd like to leave you with happy listening.